Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to open them, uh, the copies of your Bible, that is, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is our text today under the title, Reconciled to God. The first 11 verses is our text this morning. I know that uh, many of you were out last week on mission trips and family vacations over spring break. So uh, let's try to catch up today, all of us to get on the same page going into next week. You know that we're in the middle of a six week sermon series leading up to Easter Sunday called The Roman Road. We're using six passages from this book of Romans to hopefully equip every member of First Baptist Church of Keller to clearly share the gospel with friends and family members, even strangers. But I want to say again what I said on the first Sunday when we started this series, this is not a magical way to evangelize. It's a good way, but uh, you've probably been trained in other ways. The most important thing is that you do share your faith. Here's a good tool to do it. And one of the reasons it's a good tool is that all six of the scriptures that you use in sharing your faith come from the book of Romans. And so if you have your Bible, you can open up to one book and in a very efficient way, in an economy of words, you can share your faith with someone. And we started on week one with the bad news, didn't we? Before a person can seek salvation, they have to know that they need it. They have to know they're lost. Romans 1.18 certainly communicates that truth very well when it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But then once a person understands their spiritual helplessness, they're ready to hear the good news that is God's plan to save. The plan, of course, we know as the doctrine of justification. Specifically, salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. God, the righteous judge, satisfies his own sense of justice through the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus on the cross. That's why Paul says he can be a just God, that is he can punish sin as a good judge does, and a justifier, he can have mercy and grace. This morning we're going to look at some of the implications of our justification. When the Apostle Paul prayed for believers, he often prayed that they would do just as I'm praying for all of us this morning, that they would gain a greater appreciation of the value of their salvation. Here's how he prayed in Ephesians chapter three, for example. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. What he prays continually for believers is not that they would be satisfied with justification. Justification is a legal declaration. When you repent of sins, that moment God declares you forgiven, never to change his mind. But he wants you to start the process of growth at that moment that will continue the rest of your life. And Paul says, as you grow as a Christian, you gain a deeper appreciation for the value of your salvation. Really what he was praying for is that they would view their salvation as a 
raw diamond, so to speak. Did you see the news this week? The gentleman out in Africa, in fact, he was a pastor, found what may turn out to be the most valuable gem ever found. This is a dateline, March 16th, just a few days ago. A pastor has unearthed a massive gem in eastern Sierra Leone. Pastor Emmanuel Momo, who also works as a miner, discovered the 706 carat diamond in the Kono district. It, he handed it over to the president of the country, Ernest Karoma, who thanked him for not smuggling it out of the country. The president pledged to reward him with some of the proceeds from the sale of the diamond. Well, just how much do you think this diamond is, is worth? Well, last year, a diamond about half the size sold for $14.3 million. It's very valuable. Well, our salvation is infinitely more valuable than a shiny rock, isn't it? So let's read about it in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, just three points on your outline today. First of all, justification's implication. That is, when you come to understand that God has declared you right and forgiven, then that leads to other spiritual blessings. And I've listed five of them here for you. And uh, just take these down as I give them, and we'll talk about each one as we come to it in the text. First of all, he says, when we're right with God, we have peace with him. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might take that to mean, well, you have peace of mind and tranquility. That certainly is a benefit of our salvation, but that's not what he means here. He's talking about peace, the same kind of peace that we have when two parties who are at war have peace with one another. Because, dear friends, that's exactly the way it was before we were saved. We were at war with God. Now that's hard to convince most people, especially in America, that they're at war with God. In fact, many people who don't claim to be Christians have some sort of sentimentality towards God or um, the Bible or, or even Jesus. But the truth is, every lost person's at war with God. But that's really not the point. The point is, is that God is at war with them. I know that because of the very first passage we studied in this series, Romans 1.18, which says, the wrath of God is revealed against them. And one day his ultimate wrath will be poured out against all sinful flesh. And so I think you would agree with me that if you find yourself at war with God, you've already lost. Because you will not win that war. 
Thanks be to God for those of us who've been born again. We're not at war with God. We're at peace with God. In fact, he no longer calls us enemies, but sons and daughters. Jesus calls us his friend. Now, the second thing is we have access to God. Look at verse 2. He says, through whom, speaking of Jesus, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace with which we stand. This word is a wonderful Greek word. It has to do with someone who is an emissary who introduces a citizen to a sovereign. That is, uh, a constituent to his king. And Jesus is the one to do that. Do you remember in the Old Testament book of Esther? Esther was the queen and she was a Jewish woman. And there was a plot hatched unbeknownst to the king to kill all the Jewish people in the land. And Esther went to the king to ask him to put a stop to it. And you think, well, that's not a big deal. Except there was a law in that kingdom that no one could approach the king, even his wife, without being summoned by her. And yet she risked her own life to to save uh, her people. It's a beautiful story. Well, in a similar way, we cannot have access to God except through holiness. As we saw last week, we don't have any. In and of ourselves, human beings are solely lacking in the area of holiness. And so the only hope we have is what's called imputed righteousness. That is through faith, the righteousness of Christ is counted to our account. And so God counts the righteousness of Jesus towards us. That's why we can come before him. That's why we can spend eternity with him in heaven. And that's why the scripture says that we are to draw near, Hebrews 4, 16, to the throne of grace with confidence for the grace and mercy that we need in our times of need. Now you remember that uh, when Jesus died on the cross, according to Matthew 27, he called out with a loud voice on the cross and gave up his spirit. And what happened next was that the veil that separated the Holy of Holies, which signified the manifest presence of God among the people, was torn from the top to the bottom to show that God was the one that did it, no man. And it was also symbolic of the fact that man no longer needs to go through a system of sacrifices or even a high priest to approach God. Now, because that we have been cleansed once and for all by the blood of Jesus, we have direct and immediate access to the Father. In fact, we have an invitation to come with boldness into his presence Anytime we have a need. What a wonderful truth that is. But it's all owing to the fact that we've been justified by God. The third benefit we have of justification is assurance of salvation. Again in verse 2, he says that we come before into his grace in which we stand. That terminology of standing has to do with endurance, perseverance. Paul says, having done all to stand, let us stand firm in the faith, right? It means have your heels dug in and you're not going to be moved to the left or to the right, forward or backwards. It's the doctrine of, we Baptists call once saved, always saved. In fact, this entire section, verse 1 through 11, is really about how to have assurance of your salvation. But it's not based on what you can do to keep it because our salvation, our justification was not based on what we could do to earn that, was it? What was it based on? Grace. And the same grace that saves a person keeps a person saved. Isn't that marvelous truth? Do you know people who don't believe that doctrine? They think that you can be saved one minute and lost the next. What a miserable way to live, right? And I've known these people. And they live a miserable existence because they never know from one day to the next whether they would die, they would go to heaven. Here's the wonderful confidence you have when you share your faith with your friends. 
You can look them right in the eye and say, you can know beyond a shadow of doubt that if you die today, you'd spend eternity in heaven. And when you ask people, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? You know what most of them say, that I talk to at least. Well, I hope I'd go to heaven. Well, I believe I would. I've tried to live a good life. Tried to be a good dad and husband. I know I'm not perfect, but I think God's going to understand. Well, here's the truth. He won't. Because God's perfect and he judges based on his standard of uh, perfection. The only way anybody's going to go to heaven is through faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have all the confidence in the world that you're never going to lose your salvation and that you can lay your head on your pillow every night knowing that if you don't wake up, you're going to wake up in heaven. You can share that with other people. It's a great motivator for evangelism. Now, that's assurance. Fourthly, related to it, you have the hope of glory. Verse 2 again, we exult in hope of the glory of God. And when we talk about salvation here in this church, we do so, remember, from three perspectives. Past, present, future. The past, justification. Sometime in the past, if you've been born again, you repented of sins and right then and there, God declares you no longer guilty. You're saved the rest of your life. But from that moment on, you begin the process of growth called sanctification. And then ultimately, your sanctification is going to be consummated in heaven, right? When you die, the Lord Jesus comes. So, we have been saved through justification. We are being saved through sanctification. And we will ultimately be saved in heaven. Well, that's what he's talking about here when he talks about the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, this is one of the most abused words in the New Testament, the word hope. Because our culture has co-opted it and stolen its meaning. So the word hope today for most people in our culture means a wistful thought or fancy. We'd say, well, is it going to rain today? Well, I hope so. I'm not a meteorologist, but I hope it does. Or is your team going to win the World Series? Well, I hope so. Hope this is the year. That is, you don't know that. In fact, you have no idea if that's going to happen or not. But if you had your preference, that's the way it would turn out. That is the exact opposite of what it means to have a hope of glory. To have a hope of glory means you have fixed your wagon, as it were, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know how sure you are of glory when you're hitched to the Lord Jesus Christ? You are as secure as Jesus' place is secure in the Trinity. As long as God the Father is at one with God the Son, he's never going to reject you. That's pretty secure, isn't it? That's how sure we can be of our salvation, the hope of glory. For our citizenship is not in heaven. We're just passing through this life anyway, for which we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That is, one day we're going to receive bodies like Christ, fit for heaven. That's what our glorification will be. But don't make the mistake that many of our prosperity brethren make. That is, they overrealize their eschatology. They think there's a heaven like we do, but they just think this is it. Can I tell you a little secret about heaven? This isn't it. This is not your best life now if you're a Christian. That didn't cost you anything. All right. Hope of glory. Fifthly, exultation in tribulation. Verse 3. And not only this, I love how Paul does this. 
every few verses he'll say. And not only that, he's almost like a little child. He's so excited to tell about the Christmas present. Oh, I got this. Oh, not only that. And then he thinks of something else. Oh, and not only that. And he says, and not only that, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Now listen, all people lost or saved have hardships. If you live long enough, you learn to know that. He's talking here about tribulations, I believe, those things that come to us because of our relationship with Christ. And we tend to think of tribulations as something for a past generation, those people that were martyred for the gospel. But you need to be reminded, as I do, that tribulation is going on right now in the world. Got a newsletter this week, or really an email, phone call that uh, Brother Barnabas, our Christian brother in Nepal that some of you have gotten to know through our travels over there, was attacked by a man with a broken bottle, trying to kill him. Why? Because he confessed Jesus and not Hinduism. That happened to someone you know in, this, in, the, in the world. That's going on right now. But here's what Paul says. Not only can you endure tribulation, you can exult in tribulation. What's the word exult mean? We don't use it very much anymore. This is what it means. I had to look it up. It says to show or feel a lively or triumphant joy. It's not to just grin and bear it. It is to triumph with joy through tribulation. And you can do that as you have peace with God and access to God and assurance of salvation and you understand this life is not really where you belong anyway. And no matter what happens, what what Paul say about that? What can man do to me, right? Paul says, look, the moment I die, I'm gonna take my next step in glory. What do I have to fear? What can man do to me? And, And then there are benefits to tribulation. What we tend to think is tribulation is all negative. It's not according to Paul here. This is what he says about perseverance. He says, Perseverance leads to proven character in verse four and proven character leads to hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. And so as you go through tribulations and you make it through with your faith intact, it makes you more equipped for the next round. Because here's what we know when we go through tribulation, they're only reloading the guns for the next one, right? If you live long enough, if you make it through one trial, there's another one around the corner. But here's what happens. Every time you go through one, you get stronger. And you get better equipped to face the next one. That's why he says it leads to proven character. This is a a term from steel making. That when you pass steel as in a blade on a sword through the fire, does it weaken it? It purifies it, right? Tempers it, gets stronger. Every time it passes through the fire, it gets better. And that is true of every believer. When you go through trials and tribulations, it doesn't weaken you as a believer if you take the right approach. It strengthens you, makes you better equipped to face more trials in the future. And then he says that leads, of course, to the ultimate hope. I think what he means by that is as you go through these trials and as you get a history of it, you can look back and it leads to a a great assurance of salvation and a great confidence even in this life. Reminds me of what uh, David said to Saul. Do you remember when David was a young man 
And he went out to check on his brothers who were supposed to be fighting the Philistines, but instead they were hiding in their tents along with the rest of Israel. And he says, what, what's the meaning of this? Thought y'all were supposed to be fighting. And they said, oh, this giant, Goliath, has got us all scared. And so he went to King Saul, David did, and said, I'll fight him. And he said, oh, you're just a boy. And he's been a warrior since he was a boy. He'll eat you alive. What makes you so confident, cocky, that you can come in here and beat Goliath? He says, well, when I was shepherding my father Jesse's sheep, the lion and the bear came, and my God delivered me from them. So he will do for this uncircumcised Philistine. <laughs> and, of course, he did, is the rest of that story. David had confidence to face Goliath because God delivered him from a lion and a bear. Charles Swindoll says you need to remember your bear stories. Tell them to your children. Rehearse them in your own mind. Write them down. Read them. Tell, tell yourself and your family how God brought you through because he's going to have to do it again. And every time he does, you get more confident. Perseverance, character, and hope. I don't know about you. There's been a few occasions when I go to a restaurant and I order a nice steak and I cut into it and take the first bite and within three chews I realize I've taken too large of a bite. That's <laughs> how I felt this week when I was studying for this sermon. I told you I was going to preach through verse 11, uh, but I was, I was studying about Wednesday I realized that was going to be very difficult to do. There's so much material here, but I'm going to try to be a man of my word and let's get through and it's just going to have to be a, a Abbreviated version. The second point is love's demonstration. Look at verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one who hardly died for a righteous man. That's true, isn't it? You know, there are a few people that are so noble that we'd say, man, I'd give my life for theirs. They're such a, a wonderful person. Maybe you do that for your spouse or your children. He says, that happens sometimes, he says, but no one does that for a wicked person, right? Well, Jesus did. He says that uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, verse 8. This is love's demonstration. If you want to see the definition of love, look to the cross. People say, how, how can I know that God loves me, cares about me? Look at the cross. This is love's demonstration. This is love. And by the way, the scripture says, not that we loved him, but he first loved us. God is the initiator of love. It's God's love, not our love for him. And he says it was poured out, shed abroad, I think it says in the King James, which means it was lavished upon us, not meted out in incremental doses. It always makes me think of the woman with the alabaster box of perfume. Do you remember? Came to Jesus and people were buzzing all around and she just kind of knelt down and she had this alabaster bottle of perfume which was extremely expensive, very valuable. And she didn't take a little dab and touch him with it. What did she do? She broke it open. She poured the whole thing over him. This is what God does for us. He doesn't just give us a little grace here and there. He gave that which was most valuable and precious to him and not just for a few days and returned to heaven, he gave his life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now then he describes those that Jesus died for. Three words here, look at them quickly. First of all, he says we were helpless. 
That is, we had no ability to, to give him anything. We didn't negotiate for this. He didn't say, oh, you give a little and I give a little. That's why salvation is by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We have nothing that he needs or wants, but he loves us anyway. Then the scripture calls us ungodly when he saved us. Now, we use the word ungodly today to describe someone who is particularly sinful in our estimation, right? Oh, look at that ungodly person. Well, any person without saving faith in Jesus is ungodly. What that means is he's without God. Not only is he without God, he's not morally neutral towards God, though he may think he is. He's an enemy of God, we said, right? He's a rebel against God. And then he calls us sinners. That's a word that's still very common today. When the Bible talks about sinners and sinning, as you know, there, there are you know, innumerable ways to sin, but there's really only two broad categories of sin. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. The Bible talks about trespasses. You guys that hunt and fish know what it is to trespass, don't you? You better. It means to go past where you're supposed to go. So God puts a line up and says, don't go past here. What do we do? We do. He says, don't lie. What do we do? We lie. He says, don't steal. We steal. And so that's called trespassing, sins of commission. The other category of sin are sins of omission. When we fail to do what we should do. Romans 3.23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now the ultimate sin is not to glorify God because that's why we we're created, right? Isn't that why we were created? Yes, we were. All humans were created to glorify God. But when we reject his son, we're not glorifying him. We're doing just the opposite. We're blaspheming against him. And that's why we're called sinners. Sinners by omission, sinners by commission, sinners by nature, I might add. Now, this is the basis of our assurance. Listen to this, very important. If Jesus loved us enough to die for us when we were his enemies, do you think he loves us enough to keep us saved now that we're called his? Yes, of course he does. This is what he says. He says in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If you want to know the doctrine of once saved, always saved, or the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, as I like to say it, there it is right there. What's it based on? It's based on the righteousness of Christ. You could not be righteous enough or good enough or do enough good works to be saved, right? You can't be good enough to stay saved. John MacArthur likes to say, here's how you know you can't lose your salvation. Because if you could, you would, right? All of us would. Because we still sin even after we're saved. Now as we grow in sanctification, that sin will become less frequent and less intense, but we still sin. And even if we do, here's what the scripture says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. And here's what the Greek says, keep on cleansing us. Not a one-time deal. He is constantly interceding for us, standing between us and the righteous wrath of God. And he says, here's his promise, if he justifies you, if he declares you righteous, he's going to save you ultimately from the wrath of God. That means on the day of judgment. That's good news. You can share that with people. 
We're almost out of time. Let's go to point three. Joy's personification. If the cross is the definition of love, then a Christian who understands the ramifications of justification is the poster child for joy, or should be. If you want to know what joy looks like, you ought to be able to look to a Christian. This is what he says in verse 11. Not only this, there he goes again. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Remember our definition of exultation? Outrageous joy. He says, when you put all of these things together that he just listed, the result will be a person that is known for their joy. Now, what things are they? Let's rehearse them. What are the ramifications, implications of justification? Number one, reconciliation. It's another way of saying peace with God. It's a wonderful thing when families who are at war with one another reconcile, come back together. Pray for that among this community and in this church. But it's even a greater thing when human beings who are at war with God are reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. That is one of the benefits of your salvation. You're now at peace with God. Secondly, remember we now have access to God. Because Jesus is on right terms with God, He imputes His righteousness to us and now we're on right terms with God and we have an open invitation to come to Him at any time. Bring our needs, petitions to Him. And then thirdly, we have assurance of salvation. We don't have to fear a thing. Not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. Then we have, of course, through that assurance, that eternal hope of glory. We remind ourselves that this life is not really where we belong. We're citizens of another kingdom. We're passing through and pilgrims here. And that leads ultimately, when you put all those together, to exultation. Outrageous joy. Now, when you're sharing your faith, the gospel, with your family, your friends, your neighbors, even a stranger on a plane, that's what you can tell them. comes through repentance and faith. Before you tell them that, though, you have to tell them the bad news, right? God's wrath is going to be poured out one day. But if you will repent of sins, call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be justified. He will declare you right then and there, on the spot, forever saved. Then He will infill you with His Holy Spirit. And if you'll get together with other Christians and fellowship and study your Bible and pray, God will use that to grow you, to mature you in the faith. And one day, either when you die or Jesus returns, you'll spend eternity with Him in heaven in glorification. What wonderful good news we have to share. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture. What a blessing it has been just to study it in my office this week. Father, I know I've done a poor job of sharing it with these people, but I pray your spirit would take that uh, proclaimed message and quicken it to our hearts. Seal it there, Father, by your spirit. Cause us, Father, to be people of joy and hope and assurance so that we may share that with those around us. And Lord, whatever good you choose to do through us, we give you glory and thanks in advance. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.